think he's they're back this week. I guess, probably after Monday, Tuesday, or something like that. I um, let's let's pray. Let's do that, Father. I ask that your Spirit would just speak through your Word to each one of our hearts. We need your grace. We need your living Word. Uh, we need your enablement, Lord, to live in this text. And I pray your Spirit will come to each one of us in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, we had the reading of uh, Matthew six nine to fifteen. And I want to start off with um, asking you a question. How do you pray? People pray in in so many ways. Um, Billy Sunday of the early 20th century used to start off saying, Hi, Lord, it's me, Billy. Uh, Just start speaking to God like that. Uh, Some people, the way that they pray is they'll they'll pray, uh, they'll put their prayers into journals. Maybe that helps them to focus a little bit their prayers. They can reflect back on those. Uh, some people like to pray when they listen to soft gospel music or perhaps maybe some very soft spa music or something like that. I don't know. That sounds a little exotic, doesn't it? Um, but how do you pray? How do you pray? When focusing on the Lord's Prayer this morning, uh, Matthew Henry, was, who was a Puritan preacher, commented that the Lord's Prayer almost reads like a letter to heaven. The Lord's Prayer also shows up in Luke chapter 11 with a slight uh, some slight variation to it. Uh, for some of us here, uh, like was mentioned by our chair uh, in Hong Kong, it was one of the early prayers that she mentioned that she had learned as a child. And for many of you, that may be the case. For me, that was the case as well. I have a very clear memory uh, being in elementary school on the North Shore and being in a grade two class and in the public system, uh, prayer hadn't been put out of the public system yet. Uh, in the Canadian context. And so I can remember our teacher having us, she would read uh, some sections through the through the scriptures, and then we would stand up beside our desks, on the side of the desk, and we would all by rote say the Lord's Prayer. We knew it by heart. Certainly by halfway through the through the class, through the school year, you really knew that you knew, you knew that prayer by heart. I think um, uh, we, we should recognize that this is that the prayer beca- is part of the Sermon on the Mount. That means it's part of essential Christianity, and it assumes that we will pray. And I think it's one thing that we all share in common uh, with the rest of the family of God is that it's common for us at times to experience struggle in prayer. There are times, I think, when we wished we had prayed better. Maybe we, we our minds have been distracted uh, we, we find ourselves daydreaming when we when we have quiet prayer time. Our mind get, we, we're going through things. Then we remember, oh, I got to do this today, or I got to cook that tonight, or you know, all kinds of little distractions come into our head. Um, and then there there is the, the the issue of how do we keep praying for a situation or praying for a person without giving up and getting bored with continually praying for something that we're not seeing any movement on, maybe for a very very long time. How do we not let our our expectations and our disappointments with prayer interfere with uh, with praying? This is this is really the theme of Martin Scorsese's movie called Silence. Those Catholic uh, priests, Jesuits, that went over to Japan and and uh, suffered so much. Many of them ver- almost no conversions, and many of them were martyred. How do we get over feeling stuck in prayer? And what does it mean for prayer to become something that's 
personal renewal rather than a burden. Well, the big idea that I would like you to take away with you in your pocket this morning about this text is that the Lord's Prayer was intended to free us to pray, uh, using a helpful pattern or a helpful uh, model uh, to remind us of God's presence and God's care. This this might be better titled uh, maybe praying the model prayer or, or using a template for prayer or the disciples' prayer, something like that. But it's intended to help us when our hearts feel blocked and when we need someone corking in, in, our, in our prayer lives. And the prayer has actually two parts. Um, it begins with three verses that are focused on our need for a recognition of who God is. And then there's three verses identifying our need to rely on him daily and our need for repentance and forgiveness. And we need to take notice of the encouragement that Jesus wants to give us out of this text on how to pray. I'm going to follow the text fairly closely, and I'm going to urge you to do that as well. Perhaps it might go up here. Uh, I'm going to begin with verse 9. And it says this, in other words, it's talking about a pattern, okay, or a model. Uh, This then, not, not rote, not just doing a rote, not just recitation, not just repetition, but this idea of a model or a pattern or a template is how you should pray or practice the presence of God, if I could use Brother Lawrence's language. And he begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't get past the first word and we're presented with something that we need to grab a hold of. Six times in this prayer, there are plural pronouns that are used. Plural pronouns like our. We probably would be on our own without any aid. We would just say my father, something like that. But that's too individualistic. That, that's kind of a, a me, myself, and I approach to God. Uh, and, and there is this push in, in society to privatize faith and privatize religion. And that's precisely what's being pushed against in this. We barely get started in the prayer. We're reminded that our identity is in the family of God and that God has chosen to adopt us. And that prayer is not just for ourselves, but right from the very first word, it includes others. Many of you here are perhaps familiar with uh, lots of, of the classic Christian uh, books, books like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, this allegory of a Christian's journey home. Uh, in that book, companionship and fellowship and accountability are very strong uh, themes in sections of the book. And some of the, uh, the, pers- the person called Christian, some of his friends' names are actually called faithful and hopeful. And we're, we're reminded immediately in the Lord's Prayer that we're journeying together. We're journeying in prayer partnerships, and we're sharing our stories for encouragement. And for some, some of us here this morning hearing this, the, this might mean choosing to share more of our lives in our journey and, and doing that prayerfully together. We're introduced already by the second word, our Father. We're not introduced to our judge, our ruler, uh, you know, in the, in the 
early, uh, well, I should say in the medieval church used to present, I remember being in Constantinople, uh, which was the old Constantinople, and looking at these images that they had uh, in the mosaics of God. And, and, and he looks just like a, a Roman emperor, you know, like all, it's just kind of like that, these, these kind of concepts of God. But we're introduced to God as being personal in this language. Now think about it. Why is that the case? I think it's the case because, frankly, we don't always perceive the Father as intimate. I think at times we perceive Him as being detached or distant or even silent. And so what the prayer begins already by the second word is to correct some of our misguided perceptions of our Father. And when we request the Father's attention, we remember that we come as adopted sons and daughters. The actual Greek word for father here is the one that was the word Abba. I know that means nothing in English, but it was in the first century, it was a warm, intimate name that was used by children for their earthly fathers. And it was similar to the word daddy, or maybe papa, something like that. And uh, the language evokes a measure of biblical imagery. It's really, some of that is like the, the imagery of, of the prodigal returning to a loving father, a good father who gives good gifts. We, we need to foundationally understand him as this, as being good. If we don't have that foundational understanding that God is good, it warps out everything else in terms of our approach to him in prayer. And what Jesus does is he encourages us to pray out of this trusting understanding of God's fatherly care. As I was trying to think about this and, and how to illustrate this a little bit, I, I, was, I had been looking at some very endearing photos that came out of the former U.S. president's um, offices uh, in regards to uh, the president and, and his children. So this was, I'm thinking of President Obama. I won't talk about the current president. I don't want to get things going here and divide you guys on that. But, but uh, in the Obama administration, there were some wonderful photos that were taken of his, of his children. He actually had outside of his office a swing set that was built for his, his daughters to play in so that he could actually, actually watch them. Life magazine had done this with an earlier president with um, uh, John, JFK, the, the Kennedy uh, family, and... Uh, where there were some wonderful pictures Life Magazine had of the children. He would be sitting at his desk, and, and these children were, while he's working, they're playing amongst his feet and crawling about like children, children do. And those photos won the hearts of Americans. I would say in both cases of both presidents that I just cited. They just, they just win the hearts of Americans. Because it's this image of one of the most powerful fathers on the continent with their children playing right around them. And it's a beautiful image. And that image, if I can just draw from that for a minute, this idea of the father-child idea is captured here. God as father. And this, this kind of a warmth that's tied to it. For some here this morning, you need to let that sink in. You need to let that sink in a bit. Our Father who art in heaven. Now there's, there's this sense of, of reverence for him. He's not just our buddy. He's not, he is other. He is holy. But we know that 
Heaven doesn't contain God, but the language is for our, for us. But what, what the writer, the Apostle Matthew, is emphasizing is that the Father has a full and a clear view of our burdens, of our desires, of our weaknesses. The idea that we are always under God's eye and that he's able to do, as Paul would have, would have said in Ephesians, able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And then the prayer moves into seven requests. I count out seven. Uh, some people say they see six. I think I see seven. So let's just go with it. Um, it starts off with the first request. And the first request is actually done in, a, in, a, in worship, really. It's hallowed be your name. I love the way the message puts it. It says, reveal who you are. May you be honored and exalted for who you are, God. Not for what I want you to be, but disclose who you really are. Rid me of faults and unholy and irreverent conceptions of you. Be glorified in my life. This is this idea. We often have a, may have a, a caricature of what God is. And we're asking him to strip that away. Show us who he is. The second and third requests are found in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. What is the kingdom? Oh, that's a daunting statement, right? Right away, people are going, your minds are all just going right away. I can just see the smoke coming out of your ears. What is the kingdom? Well, simplify it, right? The kingdom is God's reign. It's the announcement of God's lordship over all areas of life, to, to put it very simply. And we enter that by God's gift and with our with open hands like a child. That's how we enter it, open hands to him. Who here doesn't have a yearning to see God's final establishment of his rule over all of creation? The ref, really, the request was reflected in the early church's uh, oldest prayers where they would say the word Maranatha. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Right, Looking forward to a time when one of the minor prophets, Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 14 says that one day that the knowledge of the Lord will be as the waters cover the sea. Looking for a time such as this. And there's a tendency, I think, for some of us to pray, not in that way, but to pray, you know, take me to heaven, get me out of here, just, just get me out of here. And this prayer focuses on asking heaven to be brought here, his reign to be brought in the midst of our life, our community, our nation, our world. Lord, may your kingdom of grace be advanced in us and others, brought into it, and keep us in it. Lord, may we seek your power in furthering your kingdom in obedience and to the call and service and living a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Your will be done. When we look at the world that we're in, we're born into a world. We do not see a world as God intended it. It's a world in rebellion. And in fact, until we're birthed into the family of God, that is our total disposition towards God. You watch the news and you see a world in turmoil. It's not the world that God intended it to be. And so when he, when we are being told to pray, your will be done, I, I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message once again. He says, set the world right, do its best. 
like that plain language. Your will, your, your purpose, your desire in the battle between my expectation and your will. And we do have expectations that are not necessarily in line with his will. And we think about Jesus' model of his prayer in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. It reminds us that we can be longing for something else. My will be done. And this is why in another text, we're reminded that the things of God come first before our things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It's talking about priority. So prayer is, is like a compass. And the question is, is will we allow God to adjust our course and prepare us for his next moves and his next promptings and purposes in our lives? Part of living a life of witness to the good news is praying that the Lord helps us to be able and willing and to know and to submit to be obedient to do the will of God. I think I've mentioned this here before. I may or may not have. I've spent a lot of time preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, but uh, many people think that the Gospel of Matthew, that when Matthew actually sat down to pen this, that he did that in Jerusalem. That's not the case. He's in uh, western Syria. He's with a whole bunch of, of Jews that have come out of uh, their way and out of Jerusalem. You know what happened in, in the Roman um, conquest and what happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and all that sort of a thing. And so they're segregated in, in a part of western Syria. And he's reminding them, he's reminding them of the missionary intentions that God had for the community to see the opportunities for witness and service around them. The proof that we have an authentic faith, according to Matthew, is deeds to follow Jesus and to do the will of the Father. And so the, really our prayer behind this is, Lord, give us the grace and enable us to make a difference. So let's ask the question for a minute. In short, what is the Lord's will? What are you talking about? You know, it's like saying, what is the kingdom? Now let's talk about what is the Lord's will. We sometimes have to unpack this because it, it, it's assumed. We are the church in mission. A key concept in interpreting Matthew's missionary consciousness in his gospel is to bear fruit. And it involves a commitment to the reign of God and to love and to justice and obedience in the entire will of God. Mission involves being sensitive to the needs of others and asking God to open our eyes and our hearts to recognize suffering and oppression and the plight of people who've fallen on the wayside. So we're involved in this whole area with God in reconciling, restoring, and that includes the broken things and broken places. So we're to proclaim Jesus's ultimate victory in a missionary existence. So mission is something that defines our identity. This is what's behind Matthew. We get it when we read Matthew 28 right away. This is what he was on about all along, all the way, all throughout, was he was talking about Jesus' mission. Then he finally gets very explicit at the end of the gospel. But the kingdom is coming by this mysterious working of God, but it also includes our faith and our obedience, our prayers, our witness, and us as agents of change. And all that is drawn into the action of God. And the good news is, is this, is that he helps us. We're not alone in this. And that's where this prayer is coming in. The fourth prayer request in this 
is that the, 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 it shifts now to asking for our own needs. Most of us are a little bit more familiar with this kind of praying. Stephen Nichols, who was uh, author of a very uh, famous biography on Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther, who incidentally has the 500-year anniversary this year of the Reformation, uh, he commented, Stephen Nichols, on the life of Martin Luther, that two days before Martin Luther died, the last words that were recorded of him were the words where he said, we are all beggars. We are all beggars. And with our hands out, we ask, in verse 11, give us today our daily bread. If you're looking at this similar prayer in Luke chapter 11, verse 3, it says, give us each day. Well, the things we do today tie into tomorrow. It's however you look at it, we're asking him either, we're asking him to provide our needs. What the day's necessities require. I'm not talking about your sports team, okay? God knows how vulnerable we are to, to feeling insecure over addressing the needs and challenges of our physical well-being. We can get anxious and we can be so driven about this sort of thing. And so bread here is a figure of speech for all of our needs. All of our, the focus uh, puts it into the physical needs, but I think about, when I was reading this, I was thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He talks about what people's needs are. They have needs for, you know, beside the physical needs, there's also needs for love and needs for so forth, you know. But I, I would say this includes our plans, our dreams, our hopes, Many people have tended to spiritualize this verse, making it out only to mean heavenly bread or, or spiritual nourishment. And as, as pious and holy as that might sound, uh, God cares about our material well-being. And we're reminded to ask and to acknowledge and to be thankful for, for God's provision. Now, why would he put this in here? Well, let me ask a question. Do you feel in charge of your life? Do you feel self-reliant and self-made? I've heard people say that. I'm a self-made man. I've heard people say that very... You might be sitting here and you may say, Matthew, you don't know how hard I work this week. You're right, I don't. I actually don't. Um, but I do know that whatever we have, God has given us. Our jobs, our talents, our skills, our intelligence, our health, our opportunity. Spend some time in Psalm 139. You see that he's knit us in our, in our mother's womb. All of our dispositions, psychological. <laughs> I can go on and on and on. I do a couple of jobs to make a living. One of them, I work for Unilever uh, as a distributor. I don't get paid anything if I don't sell anything. That's it, right? I get zero if I don't sell anything. I start with zero. If I don't sell anything, there's no check. But I know who ultimately writes my checks. I know who ultimately pays my bills. I know who takes care of me. In Western culture, many of us have a stockpile of food. I'm... I'm Guessing that if I went to your house, as if you went to my house, and you looked in, we looked in each other's pantries, we'd see we're pretty good. We're doing, in, we're in pretty good shape. Some of you are even ready for an earthquake, you know. I mean, you got, 
<laughs> there's lots of stock. There's lots of stuff going on there. But I remember when I was in China and seeing unregistered people in cities who all they had was the bike and the cook pot that they had. And uh, actually, if they didn't generate a sale, they didn't eat. If they didn't sell soup, they didn't eat. They didn't sell an egg, they didn't, they didn't eat. There was no social safety net for these people. I saw that same thing when I was in the Middle East in Jordan. I can remember traveling in Yucatan, Mexico, and witnessing the indigenous people struggling to sell trinkets to scratch out a survival for their bare feet, shirtless children. And in each case, there was very little cushion to scratching out an existence. In fact, we, we can discover this reality actually right here in our own city, in our own neighborhoods, places like the downtown east side, I think. And in this sense, the words in this text, us and our, those plural pronouns, reminds us of more than ourselves. It reminds us of whole communities. It reminds us of our world and to pray on behalf of justice for the poor. Been a lot of pushback about uh, immigrants coming into the country. But I think this text would make us perhaps see that slightly differently. Quickly, Syrian refugees comes to mind, but there are other refugees, and there's all kinds of other stuff going on in the country. We can be the very source of generosity and compassion that God uses to address justice for the poor. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 talks about God blessing our work so that we can share with those in need. However, in our own context, there are, there are many, many Christians, I'll just talk about the, the church for a minute, that struggle with anxiety over material needs matters. The basics, struggling over thinking about retirement, the unstable job market, paying the bills and taxes, and all kinds of other financial matters. You can't turn on global uh, global or the, global TV or the national or CBC, I don't know what you watch for news, but without you know being bombarded by the housing and the rental crisis being a runaway train. And the whole issue that seems to come across in these stories is, will I have enough? Will my kids have enough? Will there be a future for my kids or my grandkids? All these kinds of questions. When he says daily in this text, it means sufficient for today. Now remember that the first readers of this, and Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, right? I've told you that. That when they would read the word daily, this evokes in the mind of a Jew Israel's daily reliance on God in the desert for manna. If we were to look at that text, spend some time in it, we don't have time this morning. It's in Exodus chapter 16. But we can see that that was given one day at a time where God was developing a continuing dependence on him. When you read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5, it tells you even, now they were there for how long? How many years? Somebody tell me. How many years? 40, 40 thank you. And it says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 5, that their sandals and their clothing didn't wear out. That's the God whom we serve. Do we struggle with anxiety over today's bread or tomorrow's bread? Sometimes we do, right? Let's be honest with ourselves and with God. We give our needs to God who can exchange 
our anxiety, our worry, worry and our fear for His peace. This prayer is bringing us into a place where we find peace on so many levels of things that are being introduced into this text to us. And the verse is calling us to trust God and to live in the grace of one day. Live in the grace of one day. The fifth prayer request is a request, it's really addressing spiritual battles, I would say. It says in verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Most of us, I think, know what it's like to owe something to someone else, even if it's little, some of us larger. I remember the day that my wife and I bought our house and we took on this enormous debt that we owed to the bank. And I also remember the day when my wife and I finished paying the mortgage and we went down to Ambleside Beach in West Van and we burned the mortgage and we celebrated that. (laughs) Very perceptive, right? There is a problem with my analogy. There is a problem spiritually with my analogy. Because with God, we owe a debt we cannot pay. We could never pay. The language gives us the imagery of a debtor in a creditor's hand. You can't get out of it. That's that's the idea here. And debts is a metaphor for sins in general, wrongdoing, shortcomings, omissions, sins we've done, sins we've done by not doing what we should have done, where we can't go back, where we can't save face, where we can't unscramble the egg. Some translations in this, in this particular uh, Lord's Prayer use the word trespass or sins, meaning missing the mark, or trespasses going past the boundaries. What Christ has done, and this is, this is exciting because he's canceled and he's wrote off and paid the debt for us that we could never pay. But we must ask for it. It's very likely that there are some people sitting in this audience this morning. You have not asked God into your life. You do not know Jesus. I want to tell you something that the burden that you carry on your shoulders can be lifted by asking for His grace in your life and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness always gives us another chance to get it right. It's intriguing that the verse doesn't just end with, forgive us our debts. This is the only part of the prayer that the Lord actually dwells on longer in verses 14 and 15. Ever wonder why? One thing you know about the Lord is that, and Scripture, is that if things are repeated, it's for emphasis, and because it's very important. The Lord knows that we struggle with letting go. Things like work offenses, or school offenses, or forgiving with a spouse, or forgiving with the kids, or forgiving with parents, or forgiving your ex, or church hurts or people who have burned you, or hurt you, or gossiped about you. And we can keep bringing this stuff up in our minds, and we don't let it go, and we can get hard and calcified hearts. In fact, we get triggered even by the thought of the person. Somebody might say, oh, let's go over and visit so-and-so, or why don't we invite so-and-so? Ah, no, no, I don't think we should do that, right? This is the, the subtlety of it all. And the link here is as we 
live forgiving and reciprocate giving forgiveness. The forgiveness that we want from God should be mirrored towards others. Don't have time to get into Matthew chapter 18 to read the story of the unmerciful servant, one who was forgiven a debt, but would not forgive another and had that person put into prison. And when the other ruler found out that he never forgave somebody else for a lesser thing, he punished him to the full extent. In the message, it says this, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. The Lord wants us to know that he can also enable us to forgive. The, the Greek word actually in this word is aphis. It means to release or to dismiss or to free as an act of our will. Try thinking about this a little bit and Corrie ten Boom opened up a story in her own life, opened this up where she was in after, during Germ, uh, the war, Second World War, uh, her and her sister family got arrested for uh, harboring Jews and protecting Jews in their home. And they got caught. They went into a prison camp. Um, they experienced an enormous amount of humiliation, um, mistreatment, uh, all that sort of a thing. After the war, wouldn't you know it, God would raise up Corey. Her sister instantly died in that prison camp. Uh, the Lord raised up Corey to, to be a preacher in Germany, of all places, if you could imagine. And one day she was in a service and she was preaching on the forgiveness that God gives. And as she was looking out in the audience, she saw a former Nazi uh, soldier who had been in that camp and actually had badly mistreated them uh, in, in the prison camp. And uh, after she finished preaching, as typically happens, uh, people come forward and they talk with the minister and stuff like that. And this former Nazi soldier was making his way to the front to talk to her. And uh, she was thinking, oh, no, 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 Lord, oh, no, no. You know, and uh, as he came up, uh, he extended his hand. He said, you imagine that God would forgive a sinner like me. Please forgive me. He put out his hand to her. And she said there was everything in her that just revolted about that. And in her own mind, she sent up what we call an arrow prayer, which is a prayer in your mind to the Lord. Lord, help me do this. She said as soon as she put out her hand and he put his hand in hers, she just felt the presence and the grace of God just go through her, almost like electricity, she said. And she felt this release that happened in that moment, in that very moment. As we is intended to wake us up, Forgiveness is at the very core of God's intentions, and we are praying towards this goal. We ask for God's enablement. We take it. We need it. God's enablement. So that's the point. There's more that can be talked about forgiveness, but, but I want to stay in the text. The real work of the kingdom is reconciliation. This is the inbreaking of the kingdom. If we want to know God better, we need to start walking down the road of forgiveness and expressing forgiveness. This is why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 7, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The last two requests, verses 6 and 7, are in verse 13, where it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That first part, lead us not into temptation, is probably better translated, don't let me be led into temptation. That will, that's a better way of putting it. 
the reason being is because James tells us that God does not tempt us to do evil. The message puts it this way, keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. Many of you know the story of Job, that God actually had put a hedge around the life of Job. And Satan asked for that hedge to be removed. What he's asking here in this prayer is for us to pray that God would keep a hedge around us. That's that idea. Martin Luther's 1524 uh, book titled The Bondage of the Will makes this very point that our own sin incapacitates us when we pray, but God changes our heart and he steers us into his good purposes. So it's a prayer, Lord, restrain us from injuring our souls. Give us wisdom, give us strength to take preventative measures against the the weak areas of our lives. And God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we can bear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us this. But deliver us from the evil one. We leak. Jude 20 tells us, build ourselves up on our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And that's how we build up being strong in, in the Lord. Now, the question, I just want to say one last thing. I know we're getting close. I guess time is running, is running out quickly. Um, do, if I, if I, uh, if I've read the old Lord's Prayer, you'll, uh, you know, hear it right out. Usually you'll hear people say, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Most of us are, are familiar with that final doxology. It's not in the text. It's in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. However, what I want to say is this. And I encourage you to do this with this prayer. When you feel unfocused, you can pray the Lord's Prayer meditatively. And by the way, um, I, I don't necessarily feel that I have to pray the whole thing all at once. Maybe, maybe your need is to focus on the Father. Maybe you have a need in that area. Or maybe, you know, there are times when you feel depressed and you need to have that encouragement. You can pray the Lord's Prayer. When you feel anxious, you can pray portions of the Lord's Prayer. And when prayer doesn't make sense, we can still pray the Lord's Prayer. I want to encourage you this week to, to slow down and become quiet and pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe just some sections, maybe some pieces of it for your encouragement and reflect on the meaning meditatively of what the Lord is trying to say to you. And maybe, maybe you, you long for intimacy. Maybe that's where a piece of this is going to be important for you. For each of the seven requests, I want to encourage you to bring specific people or situations in mind to pray over. Does that sound like a good piece of homework? For all of us, right? Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your head in prayer. We'll just close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for reminding us that we are in your family, that you are good, you are personal, you are caring. And may you continue to show us who you really are. Remind us that you reign. Enable us to do your will, I pray, Lord. Keep us forgiving with you and forgiving others, for it's the truth. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. I'll call in your chairperson.